Section four of Unknown London. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Maria Casper. Unknown London by Walter George Bell. Chapter four Ghosts in the Tower of London. When darkness descends upon the Tower of London, the sharp outlines disappear, and piled masses of masonry take new and fantastic groupings. That is the time for testing nerves. A wind blowing unobstructed over the broad river reaches sings its message among the tops of the high turrets and through the locked gates. The tide lapping the Thames wharves, unseen though but a few yards distant, the occasional stir of the shipping, and the inexplicable sounds of a great city add to the mystery of the night out of a break in storm clouds the moon peers down searching with a silvery light the baileys and sally ports and prisoners walks guarded by these strong walls then some will tell you the dark shadow of an axe steals across the blood-soaked plot of ground on tower green and stands gaunt and erect silhouetted against the norman keep no i have not seen this ghostly shadow myself nor have i found any except those who have it on hearsay but this is one of the traditions of the tower and there are many if substance there be in the belief that distracted ghosts revisit the scenes of their great sorrows assuredly upon no spot on earth do they congregate more thickly than here eight centuries of england's story in tragedy and suffering are isolated within the towers encircling walls sir walter raleigh's phantom is reputed to have been seen flitting noiselessly about the cells and passages of his long captivity suddenly the white figure of a woman has appeared upon the execution ground and as suddenly vanished one of henry the eighth's ill-fated queens a sentry watchful and alert has fancied that he has heard proceeding from the dungeons of the white tower muffled by the immense thickness of the walls the agonized cries of guy fawkes stretched in torture upon the rack all these things are vague and unsubstantial as ghosts themselves are grown about the gray walls of the state prison the results my reason tempts me to disbelief with the assurance of strained watching of a state of expectation of mind that gives form to just what is expected indeed considering its crowded past the ghosts of the tower of london are lamentably few three only have i been able to track down that stood out in circumstantial detail before those who witnessed them first a queen's ghost the queen of unhappy tragedy and of undying pathos anne boleyn her window is still pointed out it lights a little room in the lieutenant's lodgings facing west a low-ceiled apartment for it is but eight feet high roughly fourteen feet square and panelled throughout with oak it is kept much in the same state as when anne boleyn slept therein her last night on earth in the year 1864, 
visiting rounds of the guard within the tower were being made when the officer came upon the sentry posted underneath this window a rifleman of the sixtieth rifles lying prostrate and unconscious on the ground the man was court-martialed for being asleep at his post when he said in his defence that a figure in white had approached that he challenged but the figure came on that he charged it with his bayonet and meeting no resistance fell in a dead faint in which condition the visiting rounds had found him at the court-martial two witnesses gave evidence that that night they had looked out of the window of the bloody tower before going to bed in the clear cold moonlight they also saw a white figure approach the sentry they heard the sentry challenge saw him charge the figure with his bayonet and then fall to the ground the court acquitted the prisoner for several years thereafter other sentries on the spot declared that they had seen the same figure and the post became of such evil repute that the men tried to avoid it general sir george young husband to-day the keeper of the crown jewels tells the story in his recent book on the tower from within it having come to him from the late major-general j d dundas then a captain in the sixtieth rifles and it is corroborated very closely by field-marshal lord grenfell who was in the same regiment the others i fear are somewhat ridiculous sadly falling short of what one has a right to expect a ghost should be in such a place as the tower they seem to plead gibbering for apology one of these happened properly a ghost happens to none other than a late keeper of the crown jewels himself late in life when in his eighty-third year mr edmund lenthal swift committed to paper the narrative of his eerie experiences thinking that it should not pass with him to the grave he was a public official of merit and distinction who held his post from eighteen fourteen till retirement in eighteen forty two and he played a courageous part in saving the regalia during a terrible fire that destroyed the armory in the tower in eighteen forty one no one privileged to have known this fine old gentleman himself the soul of honour could have questioned the absolute sincerity of the assurance with which he closed his story to all which i have set forth he wrote as seen by myself i absolutely pledge my faith and my honour the regalia in his charge was at the time safe kept in the martin tower a stronghold which forms the northwest angle of the inner ward and there the keeper had living rooms with his family how the spectre appeared to him his own words shall tell one sunday night in october eighteen seventeen i was at supper with my wife our little boy and my wife's sister in the sitting-room of the jewel house which is said to have been the doleful prison of anne boleyn it was not and of the ten bishops whom oliver cromwell piously accommodated there the doors were all closed heavy and dark curtains were let down over the windows and the only light in the room was that of two candles on the table i sat at the foot of the table my son on my right my wife fronting the chimney-piece and her sister on the opposite side i had offered a glass of wine and water to my wife when on putting it to her lips she paused and exclaimed good god what is that i looked up 
and saw a cylindrical figure like a glass tube something about the thickness of my arm and hovering between the ceiling and the table its contents appeared to be a dense fluid white and pale azure like to the gathering of a summer cloud and incessantly rolling and mingling within the cylinder this lasted about two minutes when it began slowly to move before my sister-in-law following the oblong shape of the table before my son and myself passing behind my wife it paused for a moment over her right shoulder observe there was no mirror opposite in which she could then behold it instantly she crouched down and with both hands covering her shoulder she shrieked out oh christ it has seized me even now as i write i feel the horror of that moment i caught up my chair striking at the appearance with a blow that hit the wainscot behind her it then crossed the upper end of the table and disappeared in the recess of the opposite window i rushed upstairs to the other children's room and told the terrified nurse what i had seen meanwhile other domestics had hurried into the parlour where their mistress was recounting to them the scene even as i was detailing it above stairs the marvel some will say the absurdity of all this is enhanced by the fact that neither my sister-in-law nor my son beheld the appearance though to their mortal vision it was as apparent as it was to my wife's and mine a disappointing ghost indeed raising expectation high but denying fulfilment this should have been a new genie of the tower forming mysteriously within the tube boiling bubbling fretting taking form gradually before the eyes of these horrified spectators bursting his bonds growing expansive and terrible filling the room with his loathsome presence like that other genie in the famous eastern story of the fisherman and the bottle cast up by the sea it was an airy monster taking shape from the agitation within a cylindrical column just in the same mysterious way that appeared before the baron de goldenstube familiar to students of the occult what might have developed but for that unseemly blow struck with the chair denting the wainscoting none can tell notes and queries discussed the matter some half a century ago with much learning but the only materialistic explanation suggested was that of a column of fog descending a damp chimney mr swift scornfully repelled that idea as if said he the densest fog that ever descended could have seized one of us by the shoulder the remaining ghost is still less substantial it appeared at the stroke of midnight befitting hour to a sentry keeping guard before the jewel-house door which stood in shadow beneath a stone archway as ghostly a door says mr swift for this apparition also occurred in his time as ever was opened or closed on a doomed man the sentry took alarm as well he might when the figure of a huge bear issued from beneath the door desperate he struck at it with his bayonet which stuck fast in the oaken door then the man swooned and his comrades hastening to the spot carried him senseless to the guard-room he was neither asleep nor drunk but a few moments before the bear emerged he had spoken to a fellow-soldier he bore a high character for bravery and good conduct 
Mr. Swift saw him next morning, trembling and haunted by fear, a man changed beyond recognition. In a day or two the poor fellow died. The body was interred with military honors in the Flemish burial ground at St. Catherine's by the tower. Several persons to whom the man spoke attested his tale, the details of which had fixed themselves in his mind, and did not vary. Till less than a century ago the Tower of London was the zoo of the city, possessing cages stored with a curious variety of wild animals, often the gifts of foreign potentates, here royally confined. Who shall decide whether or not this was the shade of some ill-treated Bruin? The late keeper of the crown jewels, it will be noticed, had a pleasant tolerance for ghosts. These, such poor things as they are, are the authenticated phantoms of the Tower of London. And to my mind they raise a question worth pondering over, for there are many persons among us to-day who pin their faith on ghosts. It is this. Not in all England's broad acres is there another area so small that is so crowded with the tragedy of life as is the Tower. Nowhere where the shades of men and women violently cut off in their prime should so thickly congregate. Not Rome's Colosseum, not the frowning fortress of St. Peter and St. Paul in Petrograd. No place, I question, in the world. In truth, there is no sadder spot on earth than this little cemetery, wrote Lord Macaulay of the sheltered church of St. Peter ad Vincula within the tower. Death is there associated, not as in Westminster and St. Paul's, with genius and virtue, with public veneration and with imperishable renown, not as in our humblest churches and churchyards, with everything that is most endearing in social and domestic charities, but with whatever is darkest in human nature and in human destiny, with the savage triumph of implacable enemies, with the inconstancy, the ingratitude, the cowardice of friends, with all the miseries of fallen greatness and of blighted fame. Thither have been carried through successive ages, by the rude hands of jailers, without one mourner following, the bleeding relics of men who had been the captains of armies, the leaders of parties, the oracles of senates, and the ornaments of courts. This is no more than true, and of all that great company of the silent who should lie uneasily, queens, statesmen, warriors, prelates, and many whose kinship has been their only crime, there is not one whose phantom, living again that last bitter hour on earth, has been seen on testimony that can be accepted by reasoning men. Lenthal Swift's poor shapeless apparition is the very quintessence of feebleness, when this ground should have yielded ghosts so strong. The Tower of London should be the muster-ground of ghostly battalions. There is none. It is watched and guarded night and day, centuries in and out, as no other place is watched. If great London cannot provide one ghostly reappearance that will satisfy, if the Tower itself, assuredly the testing-place, if such there can be, has none, then I decline to be fobbed off with stories of ghostly figures awakening sleepers in haunted chambers of ancient country houses, or moving noiselessly along wainscoted corridors. 
london-born of three generations of londoners i deny all country ghosts End of chapter four